Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to great entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today's an encore episode. We are rewinding back the clock to my great conversation with Lisa Owen, co-founder at one of Canada's most promising e-commerce businesses, Rent Frock Repeat. Lisa's team is turning the retail model on its head and leading the sharing economy while ensuring women across the country have the opportunity to access amazing fashion while also reducing their collective carbon footprint. In this episode, we dig into all kinds of great topics around the burgeoning world of renting fashion, the success of disruptors in the space like Rent the Runway, Gwinnie Bee, Stitch Fix, and others, and why fashion is the second biggest polluter on the planet and what her company is doing about it. So without delay, please enjoy, again, this amazing conversation with Lisa Owen. So circa 2011, uh-huh. right? Ren Frock Repeat is born and you've got this background in fashion to begin with. So give me sort of the summary, the quick summary of how you went from your previous role uh, into this business? Well, so if we rewind, the 2010 was when the seed was planted in my head. So I was actually turning 40 and I was coming upon 10 years with a company that I had been with for, for 10 years. It was my 10th year. So there was something magical about turning 40 and 10 in my head. You know, it's mm-hmm. that's doesn't matter what it is, but for some reason it sounded like some good round numbers. So, um, you know, I actually had a little bit of background. I wouldn't even say in fashion. I was, I was the president of, uh, an art and design school for a while. So I was surrounded by those folks, but I was always more executive administration and I grew up in sales. Um, so I've always been a salesperson, grew into some executive roles, happened to oversee a fashion program for part of that. Um, had a love for fashion. My dad's Italian. So I loved, you know, that, that piece of going out and putting an outfit together, but that really was the extent, Adam. So I would say what brought me into this was that I had a good business background. And so I understood putting together strategic plans and how to get people to come together behind the strategic plans and execution and making sure that you had timelines and financial budgets and all of those things. I was very practiced at that. I wasn't practiced at e-commerce. I wasn't practiced completely at fashion from, I didn't even know how to buy. I had no idea what a lookbook was. Somebody told me like, are you going to be using Judy's? And I was like, what's a Judy? And I found it was a mannequin. So, you know, when I look at the list of things that people would feel they had to have in order to start a business, I had no background in technology. I really had the foundational skills of business, but no specifics to what was required in that you know, every day, um, getting into a dress rental business online. I had no clue. So that, so, so part of it was just having that being at a point where I was hitting that 10 years and I was just hitting a ceiling and I knew I needed a change. 
And this presented itself through a magazine that I was reading and an invite to a wedding. And it all kind of came together in my head. The business side of me said, I think this is a really good business plan. I think the future is in this whole, at the time it was just downsizing because we were going, you know, we had just suffered through the 2008 crash. So all that came together. So I felt that I had the right idea for a business that would be relevant. I had the good foundation and everything else I would just have to learn. Okay. Lots to ask you about. Uh, re- related to what you just said. So by the way, what, what is a lookbook? I don't know what that is. Yeah. It's uh, so when you're in fashion and you're a buyer, uh, I mean, you're going up to the designers and saying, Hey, we're, we're looking to purchase. They'll give you, you know, whether it's a PDF or now it might be uh, something a little bit more detailed where you're, you're literally looking at everything that they're selling. You know, uh, it might be sketches or it might be pictures, what sizes it comes in, you know, costs, all of those things. So it's basically a summary of the current, uh, the current, um, products they have available to you as Mm -hmm. a buyer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so timing, let's talk about that. So circa 2009, uh, rent the runway is happening out of the U S that rents clothes, handbags, jewelry, and stuff online and charges subscribers a fee. Were they an inspiration for you? Absolutely. I actually, that's the magazine. So I was invited to a wedding. Uh, I was sitting at my dining room table with my now co-founder, Christy, who we used to work together and we'd always thought about doing something together. But at that moment, we were sitting at the table as friends that were invited to a wedding and we were both sitting there complaining about the fact that we had to buy something to go to this wedding and it was going to be a little bit more high end. So it was everything from, I don't want to spend the money to, I already have pieces in my closet that I'm just mad because they're not appropriate for this event or they don't fit anymore. And so I was reading through a magazine and came across Rent the Runway. At the time they were just doing uh, dresses. It was only online. And I, I thought, oh my God, this is it. Let's just rent a dress. And so logged in online and loved what they were doing and they didn't ship to Canada. And that was nine years ago. And they still don't. And we figured they probably wouldn't because when we thought about it, the whole reverse logistics of getting something back into the country. So we thought, let's take a chance. They could be, but we think that there's an opportunity here. And that's what spurred the idea. Were you convinced that you and Christy were going to go at this sort of like immediately following this event or did you have to percolate on the idea? (laughs) Uh, Christy will laugh. Uh, I wish she was here to answer that question because I was done. Like I was like, blah, blah, blah. My God, this is sketching all this stuff out. And Christy was still like, "Mm." you know, I, I'm the one with the sign in my bedroom that says, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going, are you coming with me? (laughs) You know, So Mm -hmm. I'm like crashing through the door. Uh, I'm the bull in the China shop. And Christy is the one, she's the, the yin to my yang where she wants to sit back, ask questions, figure out the detail, understand all the repercussions. You know, she's just, uh, she's more well thought out than I am. And she was looking at, she had some cash in her pocket from an event that had happened in her life, a little bit of cash. And she wasn't sure if this is where she wanted to, you know, double down. So she, she, at one point I actually said, okay, I understand. She said, no. And then I said, okay, I think I'm going to move forward with this. And then I think a week maybe went by and she called back and she said, okay, I'm in. Wow. What did the initial financial commitment look like? And were you guys calculating that or was this more of sort of like we've got an idea like you say you're a bull in china shop you've got all this enthusiasm around it and you're going full speed ahead no matter what we did know we'd want to go to investors at some point but we recognized that we didn't have a background in fashion nobody knew us yes we had some executive you know skills and we had a lot of skills to bring to the table but it was in canada 
um, you know, we were data people. So we were looking up everything from, you know, uh, women getting funding in, in just generally. And then what about in Canada? How about Canadian entrepreneurs? How are they doing from a funding perspective? So we knew out the gate that it was going to be really tough, but we thought, okay, if we wait to get the money, somebody might take off with the idea. We do have seed money from stuff that we, you know, money we had saved throughout our, you know, I always say the babysitting money since I was 15, I was good at putting some money away. Mm -hmm. So we bootstrapped the beginning and basically just said, we're going to have to trust that we can get it so far. And by the time we're starting to run out of the cash, hopefully we've raised money by then. Got it. Okay. So what was the mission? So interesting time, right? You were coming out of sort of a mild recession in 2008. You're kind of turning the re whole retail model on its mm -hmm. head. And yeah, there was some momentum happening in the US, but Canada is a different market. So this was in many ways, like the first of its kind in Canada. So what was the mission for you guys? It really was to disrupt retail. So the mission was we should be able to, um, we started with women, but anyone be able to, you know, go out and, and, and access something, but not have to keep it and not have to have those costs. And then on top of that, just that feeling. So that was the problem I was solving. Then I recognized, okay, financially, it's a better business model than retail anyway. Um, so it's not like I had to cut anything from it. And that was confirmed for me when we did go for a small loan at the BDC, the Business Development Bank of Canada. Mm -hmm. And I had, you know, accountants looking at it and going, oh, my God, this is fantastic. So you're renting fashion to your end consumer, but you've got to have an assortment out of the gate, right? What was the initial sort of like stocking of the inventory? So that's where most of the funds ended up going from the very beginning. And we knew that if we were going to, if this was going to take off, we had to make sure that when people logged onto the site, that they were going to see a volume of stuff to begin with. 50% of it went to inventory and 50% of it went to technology because there was also nothing out of the box that could do what we needed it to do, which is the whole reverse logistics piece and, you know, being able to follow a, a address across Canada when it's needed so the inventory piece was critical, but we still didn't know who's going to do this. What age are they going to be? Yes, there was rent the runway. But to your point, Adam, Canadians are different from Americans. Yep. And so we actually even found that we were attracting a much older clientele than the Amer our American counterparts. And so we went with that. So we knew we couldn't be all things to all people. And, you know, we did, you know, we'd get people from the plus size community talking to us about that, or we'd get younger girls saying, I want something that looks a little bit more young and hip, but our low hanging fruit were professional women that had to go to events and they had a certain look and they might've been in their forties and fifties. They were going to galas and holiday parties and stuff. So, but we only knew that after we bought our first inventory and then just started collecting our data. So you're right. Inventory was a big piece, but we did some some interesting things as time went on. So Americans and Canadians behave very differently, as you said. Now you're seven, going on eight years into the business. Mm -hmm. What are some of the themes related to the nature of how Canadians shop for apparel versus Americans? We're second only to the States for shopping and our transactions, actually our transactions on Amazon are even higher on a per capita basis than wow. the US. Mm. So we're shoppers. Like there's no denying we're shoppers. Like mm. we like to buy. So, um, so I would say it's not so much that it's, it's that different. It's just what's available to us. Where can we access it? And we do want access to different brands that we can't get here in Canada. You know, what's so interesting though, about the whole rental model 
just going back to what you're saying earlier about just filling a void, right? You're at this event, you're wearing something that has, you know, somebody told me about this metric called cost per wear. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of relevance to that metric when you're evaluating a piece of clothing. Like how many times you wear it? What did, what did you pay for it? Oh. Uh, and cost per wear on dresses is super, super high. And men, I'm just thinking like men have been renting tuxedos for these <laughs> events for years, yet there was not really this solution out there for women. We actually had this um, guerrilla marketing that we did downtown Toronto. And uh, we were actually out there with megaphone saying, you know, men to men have been renting tuxedos forever. <laughs> you know, why can't women rent dresses? Um, and when we studied it a little bit more, we actually recognized that even from a tuxedo perspective, women needed dresses way more often than men needed tuxedos. So exactly. like men, yeah. you know, so it was even from that perspective, we were a bigger market. So you guys have executed on this and mm -hmm. the business has grown um, you talked a bit about reverse logistics already, but for those listeners that really don't understand uh, what that means, give me the sense of the challenges related to not only sending stuff out, but bringing it back again, especially when you've got a landmass like we have in Canada. Reverse logistics for us meant we wanted 100% of everything we sent out to come back. Uh, a regular retail play or e-commerce company even will say, okay, I'm, I'm happy to ship something to you. It comes out of my inventory. My hope is you don't return it. So for every outbound shipment we had, we had to look at a, a return shipment. And so we also knew that women would want to do something like this if it was not only less expensive, but more convenient. And so we had to work through, um, you know, just that that process of how that would work. So that whole piece, not only from a customer viewpoint, but a technology viewpoint, because that same dress, we may need to turn around and ship out to Vancouver, or Halifax the next day um, or a couple of days later. So we had to make sure the technology would give us enough you know, time to do that. If somebody logged in from Halifax and that dress was going out to somebody in Vancouver the week before, this, we couldn't calculate that. We didn't want to sit there with spreadsheets trying to figure out if they could do that. So all of that had to come together because that piece had to go to, you know, 20 other women down the road. The dry cleaning, just that in and of itself has got to be a big challenge, right? Like I know that uh, RTR has got like 160,000 square foot warehouse now and they process mm -hmm. something like 2,000 items an hour. What did the dry cleaning infrastructure look like for you uh, at the beginning and how has it changed? Yeah, we outsource. So we've been with different partners, but we've had, you know, we literally would have loads and loads of people coming through every day, just picking up, dropping off picking up, dropping off, picking up and dropping off. So we ended up with um, outsourcing both dry cleaning and repairs to begin with. We eventually brought repairs in-house. So we had people on staff, so seamstresses on staff that were actually repairing these pieces. Um, but we continued to outsource the dry cleaning. Um, and, you know, speaking of Front the Runway, I think they're now the biggest dry cleaners in North America. So with a population of 338 million, it gets pretty big. Yep. Um, and, and we're um, we might talk about this, but we're, we're now going into a subscription model where the number of transactions that's going to happen. So with Rent the Runway, same thing. As soon as they start came away from just renting dresses and now doing pants and blazers and blouses, as you can imagine, that's where the, the volume continues to increase. And so as we transition into a similar type subscription model, we're expecting that at some point we're going to have to uh, create our own as well. What is the percentage of repairs uh, per uh, transaction? And do you charge that back to the customer? We do not. And so um, customers would pay 
a $5 insurance fee on every item. And that just allowed for any kind of wear and tear. So whether that's a slip falling, you know, beads falling off, um, the $5 would cover that. And again, it was a small percentage. We'd have, you know, from flat out, it's unrepairable. We can't use it anymore. That was 0.5% of the inventory that would come back. Very small. People were really good at them. It's a membership. You know, people want to come back. We have all the data who they are and what they use the dress for, which, by the way, was the number one reason people loved us. Women loved us because we kept track of every dress that was going to every event. And so we could guarantee that no two women would show up the same event wearing the same dress. How did you guys build the analytics to gather that data on customers? Yeah, so that was the big piece. And, And actually, part of our transition now, too, when we came out in 2011, nothing existed as far as a software. Shopify wasn't really, you know, there. We had been looking at Magento at the time, but it was almost too big and we couldn't play with it as much as we needed to. So there was no out of the box. So we had a back end, um, the, the, the kind of out of the box is free that we manipulated quite a bit on Ruby on Rails. And we came up with our own and we did all of that in house. Now the technology started to get a little older. And now that we're going into a different subscription service, everything is going to act uh, quite a bit different. Yes, it's rental. Yes, we're still, you know, we're growing our product category, but it changes when you're, you know, doing one off rentals for a weekend for a woman versus a monthly subscription service. So we're back at it where we've got our stack built now and we're RFPing for the second piece. And we've got uh, that technology that's that's going to start being built in the next month. Let me ask you about Stitch Fix in the States. So this is also highly, highly data driven business. Um, The company is probably the most cash efficient uh, e-commerce player of the decade going from zero to about a billion in revenue in six years. People like to call them like the Netflix of fashion, right? Do you, do you see them as an inspiration? Do you see them as a threat to the industry? I, uh, Katrina Lake is a, a hero of mine, um, as is Jen Hyman at uh, Rent the Runway. So I, I you know, really appreciate what they've done and the, the, the roads that they've paved. Yep. The way I look at it is two things. One, from a data analytics perspective, it's the same thing for us. So going back to the, the, the original question that I kind of answered, but not in detail was, we have lots of profile information about our customers. We know, and she's wanting to give it to us because she knows that we can do a better job serving her if she provides, you know, details about her size and, and what the event is and where she's going or what her life looks like, especially for subscriptions. So what Katrina Lake has done well is to understand, you know, who are these women and what are they doing? Do they work all day? Do they want weekend wear? And, and Jen Hyman's done the same thing now that she's gone into subscription. What I'm interested in seeing and, and jury's out, I'm sure for everybody, and, you know, you never know the answer, but I think one of the things that Katrina may find challenging down the road is with Stitch Fix, I'm still consuming. I'm still buying every month. And so what I look at is the fact that women are tired of increasing the size of their closet, right? So I think she's done an excellent job of saying, okay, I'm going to send you something that you're going to love and it's going to fit properly. And women are like, thank goodness. It's like having a stylist at my fingertips without having to go to a mall. It comes to my door. I don't have time to shop. I'm busy. I have children, whatever that might be. So she's really perfected that process. But I think what's missing is the fact that I'm still accumulating. So I think that's the piece that I think Jen Hyman and what she's been doing, and especially, you know, rent, frock, repeat, we've got a We've got some different things that we want to do. We consider ourselves a service business. Yes, we're a tech business and all investors want to hear us say tech business. But at the end of the day, you need to understand 
that psychological profile of your customer and why she wants to use you. And it's not just about getting designer fashion at a better price. It's about making her day so much simpler and it's about keeping her closets manageable so she doesn't have this mental heaviness that she has to deal with every six months. And what do we do with it? We purge it, we throw out a bunch of stuff and fashion's the second biggest polluter of the planet. So rental is the answer to that as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think, you know, Lake's done an amazing job, by the way, of making that a tech business appealing to investors. I think also, I mean, these businesses, Stitch Fix, Rent the Runway, Winnie B, they also do so much for driving awareness that there are other options that ex- that exist for apparel shoppers beyond traditional retail, mm-hmm. um, which only benefits you know, everybody in the space that's sort of disrupting things. The less stuff, more life motto, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is sort of what you're alluding to. Do you get customer testimonials that you can use as case studies, sort of real world behavior and benefit that comes from shifting these habits with respect to clothing? Once they got it and once they saw that they looked amazing, that does the, the, the stuff they were getting into was much better than what they would get normally because we're not all shopping designer. So now we could go back to well-constructed pieces. So then they were going, well, geez, I forgot what this felt like. And then, and I didn't pay as much and I had access to it. And now I just shipped it back and I don't have to take care of anything. It's I'm not feeling guilty about it hanging in the closet. Then they said, hey, could you give us maternity? What about a blazer? Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. Maternity is just a natural fit. Right? Mm-hmm. That just makes total sense to me. What other categories do you think is like, what do you think is coming down the pipeline with respect to rental? PricewaterhouseCoopers put out a study in 2014 that said, you know, the sharing economy is a $335 billion business by 2025, whether it's a monthly, you know, baby clothing swap out. All these things exist already, Adam. And the difference is we call it consignment right now. So I think what rentals done is it's consignment with no work, right? So Mm -hmm. why do I have to buy it, you know, and give you all my money at that point when what I really want to do afterwards is give it to somebody else, but then I have to sell it and I have to find the time to give it to them and I have to take a picture and load it to something or you're only going to give me so much consignment because I understand you need to make money too but you're only thinking about it as the next transition. So we do sharing and we do renting. It's just that we're taking all the rub out of it and saying, you don't have to pay for it all. Just pay for the the time you're going to have it and then give it back to us. And then we'll take that same piece and we'll charge them for the time they're going to have it. And you don't have to worry about anything else. Are there traditional fashion brands that are now starting to test this out? Rental is going to be exactly like retail. There's going to be, you walk out and somebody wants to shop at Anthropology. Somebody else is an Aritzia person. Somebody else shops at Whole Renfrew. Somebody else shops at Reitman's. 
all of these people are going to get into rental. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But the way that I see it is, um, and like you say, the business model has got to work right at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And with the increased competition, I'm, I'm guessing that, that you know pricing becomes a huge factor for consumers if they've got a lot of choice. And then ultimately, you know, there's a lot of pressure on you guys, the uh, smaller the smaller enterprises, to compete with, say, the whole renters of the world, who've got deeper pockets and can sort of undercut their cost of rentals. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's if we look at their whole infrastructure as ready for rental. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the technology and the fulfillment capabilities, um, are they prepared for repairs and maintenance? So the way I see it is they're really great. They understand their brand. They understand their consumer. They've been working with them for a really long time. So, you know, we're hoping that what we're building on the back end uh, we can be the infrastructure for that. So the faster they grow, the more they support rent frock repeat because the back end processes is what we wanna we wanna be able to provide to them. So that's where from a growth perspective, we see it not as competition because there's technology they need that that'll be us in the Canadian marketplace because it's also again a geography play. If you have to fulfill and it's reverse logistics, you need this type of company in every country around the world. Right. Um do you know if Rent the Runway, for example, is providing their infrastructure as a service to you know, traditional retail fashion brands in the States that are doing this and using them for, say, dry cleaning or reverse logistics or anything like that? So there's two different things that are, are happening right now in the U.S. So one of them you named uh, Gwynny B. So Christine Hunsaker, uh, she's actually called the back end of her platform something different called Castle. And then Rent the Runway is the company that's uh, that we've been talking about from the very beginning. And I would say my answer is yes, they're, they're both doing it, but doing it slightly differently. So Castle is bringing on, so if you go to Ann Taylor right now, uh, New York and Company, Express, Vince, Rebecca Taylor, um, they're both retailers and brands that are now offering rental. But what you don't know, and but it's public, you can go find this information, um, is that they're being powered by Castle. What do you think is going to happen with respect to the male fashion apparel industry? So we've got, just name a couple of players. So Indochino, which is the sort of custom tailored for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in menswear. Um, great company, but you can't rent. Right. And Trunk Club, which is sort of the early um, version of, let's say, Stitch Fix for men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, with your personal shopper that pre-selects items for you, ships it out to you, whatever. Do you think men are going to gravitate toward rentals? I do. It may not be as, so there's still the pressure on women to look different or do something different. It just, it is what it is for whatever reason. We won't go into the reasons of it. Just, it is what it is. So I don't know if it, if it's from a lifetime value, there'll be as much, but we already have men asking us and saying, well, geez, I'd like that. I work in a, you know, a really laid back environment. I'm in, you know, jeans and a t-shirt, but then all of a sudden we're going away for a weekend or I'm having to go to something important, or I have to go to a business meeting for a weekend or a conference. And I'd like something just for that versus going out and buying something tailored to me today. Even if the price is good, it doesn't matter if the price is good and it's great in four years, if fashion starts to change, I'm in that same boat and it's the pressure's getting on men too. There was a time where suits were suits and now it's like slim cut and this and this color and there's more fashion coming in for men. So there, the, the rental piece is going to, it's going to infiltrate men, kids, teenagers, um, and again, for more reasons than just, I want change, it'll be because it's the right thing to do. And millennials are asking for something a little bit more sustainable. 
And I think the other tough thing, Adam, that I would never want to get into is the other thing we've read from our studies is these digital native brands that are coming out that are doing so well. It's, it's like, it's the discovery, right? You know, it's interesting about men. They, I think you, so you mentioned millennials. There was a article that I read that said male millennials actually care a great deal about how they look. Mm-hmm. They just hate shopping. They hate right. going to stores. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, companies online that can sort of, alleviate that pain point for them uh, are going to succeed long-term because, you know, that demographic is still very, very fashion conscious, even though people just don't think of men that way, they're becoming more so. So rewinding back to something you said earlier about fashion being, um, what is it? The second biggest polluter on the planet. Mm -hmm. So when you think of disposable fashion, right. Mm -hmm. And people use that use that term all the time to describe H and M, to describe Zara. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Jennifer Hyman said that her mission was to put those retailers out of business. Mm-hmm. Explain why apparel is such a high polluter, and just for somebody that just doesn't think of fashion as an industry that pollutes the planet. Right. Um, what is the impact of the industry to the environment? When we just think about a pair of jeans, you know, um, they talk about the number of liters of water that need to be um, used just for a pair of jeans. So there's water consumption that's being used. And then they also talk about, you know, in India, you can see what the Pantone color of the year is. So Pantone color of the year is like every year there's a color that's voted in because we got to keep fashion going. Right. Like if people are actually happy with the clothes in their closet, we can't sell them more. So I know I'm going to get, you know, destroyed for this because, like I say, come to things practically. But come on, why is orange now the new color next year? It's because it has to be because we have to sell more stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we go to India to get it manufactured. And so those dyes are going into the water and they can actually tell the Pantone color of the year by the color of the water. So, you know, we have to think about those things that when we're going out and we're buying something that costs, you know, $19.99, we know it, it, you know, and, and Adam, I'm not saying you're horrible people for buying it. I've bought, I love fashion. I have a hard time staying away because you're like, oh my God, it looks so great. I got to go to this X meeting. I have to go to this X event. I just want to look like my best. So, you know, I'm not blaming the Zara's and the H and M's, you know, we, we've, we've fed the monster and, but yet, we're used to variety now. And so now what we have to do is make sure that we let people still have the variety and consume. We're not going to change behavior. So the system has to change around them. And so I think that's what I love about rental. But when you look at the Blue River, or you look at it, it's just it's incredible water, uh, waste, um, you know, conditions, all of those things. It's it's literally the the materials we're using, the synthetics we're using and creating, you know, there's it's getting to the point where when you want to discard clothes and bring it to Salvation Army, they're getting to the point where they can't take it anymore. And we have nowhere left to put this clothes. So even we used to put it on barges and send it off to India or to South Africa, and they don't even want it anymore. There's wow. too much stuff. Everybody's drowning in clothes. Wow. Well, what about the B certified corporations? So Patagonia comes to mind. Are, are these companies doing their part, do you think? I think they're trying. So there's the uh, MacArthur Foundation that's, you know, really looking at what we call the circular economy. So the idea is that, you know, instead of I produce, somebody buys and then we, you know, disregard. 
it's what are those little things in between. So we've talked a lot about eco fashion where people are, you know, creating the clothing in a different way. So it's not using as much resources. The circular economy, though, is also not just about how it's made, but how we use it. So rental plays a really good part with that, too. And what Patagonia and others are doing is they're creating stuff and creating systems where if you buy from them and then you don't want to use it anymore, they, they'll almost buy it back or give you a discount for bringing it back so that they can now tear that piece apart and reuse the materials for other things that they're doing down the road. I want to ask you about fundraising. <laughs> okay, so with respect to the industry that you're in, a lot of momentum, right? I keep hammering on Rent the Run- Runway and I don't want to make this episode all about them. That's okay. Uh, but in the context of how much they've raised, mm-hmm. right, which is you know, Rent the Runway's raised, I think, $400 million, um, and, and they've got you know, 8.5 million customers they're servicing or something like that. Um, have you, what's been your experience on, on this side of the border? And have you had uh, investors sort of coming at you and, and, and wanting to throw you checks or has it been challenging? Well, at the beginning, it was definitely challenging. And that's more from, I think, a Canadian American, how we go about doing business and overall. So just, to, you know, take Lisa out of the equation or take fashion out of the equation. And and you just recognize that we're much more conservative in the Canadian marketplace. I think we still don't trust ourselves to be able to build big businesses Um, And, you know, we'll say, oh, that's the way the Americans do it or as if there's something wrong with it. So I think we're still trying to find our own identity around investing in Canada. I think you can't shake uh, that conservative approach. And it served us well in a lot of ways. And so we're very proud of, you know, our banks are in good in good shape. And there's a lot there's always the, the, the pros and cons to both. So when I look at it, I think, okay, there's a couple of things. I mean, you know, network is one of them. And again, I support, you know, it's, it's not a criticism, but you have to deconstruct the process. So I think, you know, Jen and Jennifer, bright girls, you know, Harvard graduates, good networks, still had to work hard. I'm not saying it was easy for them to raise money, but the networks were kind of there. So now they could tap into it. Great idea. Little bit of traction. As soon as you get traction in the States, then there is money being thrown your way. Right. Mm-hmm. So that it's, and it's a different, the, the outcome is different too. They're, they're not necessarily, as we know, looking for a company to become profitable. That's, that's, that's a new buzzword in the last two years, profitable. Um, you know, so they're looking for different things. It's how can we scale that revenue, top line growth? Let's not worry about bottom line growth. This is really just about spinning it. When can we IPO? And, and money's just made differently. You know, in Canada, it's still like, if I'm going to invest in this, how do I get this from selling, you know, the company or how can I, what can we get and what profitability can we get to? Because maybe I'm looking at dividends. Like it's just a completely different approach. So challenging. Uh, Adam, I'll never lie about that. Had no idea how to raise money before I started this. You know, so just sat down and watched everything I could every Sunday morning online and read venture deals eight million times. And and so and it's funny for us, it happened completely I don't want to say by mistake because we were out there. We had our pitch deck down. We had our, you know, ver- the the vernacular down for it. And we were at a pop up shop in Ottawa, and a woman walked in and said, "Oh my God, this service has to be spread across the country. How can I help?" And we always did a little background. It was by appointment, so we knew who she was. I happened to read that she was an angel investor, so I worked with her, and she just led the led the way and said, "You know, I need to help you out." So. I think for women, it was really important. She was she she played as a mentor for me, introduced me to other investors, 
you know, and really now could look beyond just the business model, look at who she's investing in. Can she pivot when it makes sense? So we developed a relationship. I'm actually happy to say too, that we have about 25 angel investors and seven, we still 79.9% of the company is women owned. So yeah, so we were, we're, you know, it's, it's, it makes sense, you know, women could understand it, but to find those, we have 12 out of 25 are women and that's astronomical because as we know, there's not a lot of women that are investors these days. So, so tough on all fronts. And yes, we look to the South and say, my God, 400 million. But on the flip side of that, Adam, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. totally. Like you say, yeah. it's a different, different camps, right? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. what's a real business that can make money and what's a story yeah. that we can spin? Right. Yeah. And there's, there's obviously there, there's different approaches with respect to Dragon's Den which is the Canadian equivalent of Shark Tank. And you guys made an appearance on that show. Arlene, who is or was at the time the only woman on the panel, I think. Correct. Mm -hmm. And and ironically, she didn't take to the idea, but two men did and offered you a deal. Um, Was that discouraging for you to hear that she didn't like it? No, because we found out afterwards she actually did. So I think, you know, (laughs) what we have to we have to recognize for anybody that's listening, thinking about going on Dragon's Den, it is absolutely the best marketing opportunity you'll get in the Canadian marketplace if you're selling within Canada. So we are so we have great relationships still with some of the people that were involved with Dragon's Den at the time. And the exposure was fantastic. And you have to remember, they go into reruns. It's on Netflix. Uh, they do follow up, you know, shows which we were on as well. So like, I can't say enough about the fact that we grew to 93,000 members across Canada. A big part of that was our appearance on Dragon's Den. During the show, what they don't show you is, you know, you tape for 45 minutes. It comes down to like a three and a half minute, you know, uh, episode. Uh, she gave us a little bit of a hard time, but we actually met with her one on one about a month after we were off the show. Um, and so, you know, in all cases, you know, you see us get a deal online. But when we came out, we were only a year old at that point. It was still fairly new. And we didn't end up doing the deal. But only because everybody that was there said, it's just so early, I can't tell, you know, so it wasn't every nobody knew where it was going to go. So it seemed too much too risky, even though we were getting traction. It was oh, this rental thing. I don't know if it's going to happen. Is it going to be like the flash site sales, you know, the flash uh, that kind of went away. And so that was the piece, but we actually met with her and she's rented from us. If you look at our Instagram account, you'll actually see some great pictures of her and some of our dresses. So the deal that you guys did on the show, it never ended up coming to fruition. True. Yes. And so, and thank God, I mean, uh, you know, for what we, uh, had talked about on the show, uh, the amount that we were going to get, uh, it didn't go through and we did much better with angel investors and we were able to hold on to much more about our, of our company as a result. Yeah, something like 5% of the deals on the show actually end up surviving due diligence and end mm-hmm. up in a deal. Like I, mm-hmm. I get what you're saying about marketing mm-hmm. as an opportunity, the primary uh, opportunity beyond that show. And we've had guests who have been on uh, both Shark Tank and Dragon's Den and the feedback is the same, right? They just mm-hmm. had, they've had a great experience. It's a big marketing opportunity. They don't really go for the deal. Right. Let me ask you about Seth Godin for a sec. Mm-hmm. Um, and his influence on you. So for those that don't know Seth, who is he and what does he mean to you? And then tell me about your experience with the Alt MBA. So Seth Godin is my online husband. So that's how everybody knows him. Um, he's a he's an incredible 
marketer, um, but he's an incredible marketer because what I've fallen in love with, Seth's written books and he has, um, you know, online classes that you can take and he's just done some incredible work. And I, I think the reason why I, I worship at the, at the altar of Seth Godin is because he just thinks differently. So his approach is still always about our mind and, and our perception of things. And um, so my first encounter with him was actually just before we launched uh, Rent Frock Repeat. And I don't even know how I came across it, but I came across his um, uh, video of the lizard brain. Um, and of course, I was just ready to launch. So it was, I think the night before or a week before I was about to launch and we were had been all excited about creating it. And then you get that pang of like, oh my God, I'm about to release it. And everybody's going to see the website and see what we've built. And it's like, you know, I just gave birth to my baby and is it an ugly baby? So you have that moment of panic. And I didn't even know how to put words around it until I saw his video about the lizard brain. And he talked about like, that's just a natural occurrence that everybody goes through. But his, I, the, the thing that sat with me was he said, that's what you have to push through. So I think everybody has this feeling of self-doubt or am I doing the right thing? And he said, everybody gets there. It's like some people think that other people, oh, they just have the confidence to push through. And I just don't have that confidence. And the idea is that it's not that we don't, you know, we all self-doubt, but some of us just go, whatever. I'm just, I got to ship. And that's what he calls it. I just got to get it out there because guess what? It isn't perfect and you're going to have to perfect it and you're going to get criticism, but it, it happens to all of us. Think of the greatest companies that are out there that Lululemon, you know, they, they've made their mistake. Like everybody's just had that moment of reckoning. And so, you know, recognize you're not alone. So since then I signed up for his newsletter, I get his daily newsletter and I had the opportunity to go into his alt MBA um, class last summer. And as it suggests, it's not about an MBA. It's not the business side of things. It's how do you think, how do you filter things through? you know, do you not move on because you sank a whole bunch of money and you have these sunk costs and you're not even recognizing that you're holding on to a bad idea because there's so much money invested. So you, you got to keep going. So he just really challenges your thought process and how you look at how you look at situations. It's, it's like Seth puts a new pair of glasses and a new set of ears on your head. It puts you in a different frame of mind. The Alt MBA is it um, correspondence online, or do you have to go to New York? No, it's online, but you're you're tied into groups, and you get to know these groups really well, and you get on video um, uh, all the time. So, and it's really about you know uh, learning from each other. You have to read other people's work, give them feedback. After you've received all your feedback, it's almost like three pieces every week. So it's a community from around the world that you tap into. And it's amazing. The people that that get into the um, Alt-MBA are just are really engaged and really um, um, fascinating people. And Seth is such an influence. I mean, for, for those, you mentioned his books and the lizard brain and everything else. Uh, his new podcast called Akimbo mm-hmm. is an amazing listen. So a K-I-M-B-O for those that aren't familiar. Um, a great place to start if you haven't heard or read any of his work. He's an amazing influence for sure. Are there anything, I should say, is there anything in the last seven minutes that we should cover that I didn't ask you about? Well, I, one of the questions I get asked a lot about and I, I you know, for the listeners is if they're thinking about doing something on their own or growing it on their own, I get asked a lot about my partner. Mm. And, and, you know, because we've been together for seven years and I've gone to a lot of places where people ask about, 
whether or not having a partner makes sense. Should I go solo? And I, I find it really interesting because I've, I've seen how people react to it and, and you get such different advice from everybody. So, you know, I think that's a piece that I would say I have, I have, um, a thought on it. I have a position on it, but I, I'm, I know now that it's not the right answer. It's what was best for me. Um, so I would say that that's the piece I would speak to. So Christy and I started together. We worked together. That's how we met. We weren't friends. We were colleagues first. We quickly became friends. We just really liked each other and we recognized our different skill sets, um, from working together. So we always say I'm more big picture. Where are we going five years down the road? What about investment? You know, and Christy is the detail. Um, you know, she cleans up all the messes I make and make sure that we keep on track with things. And, uh, um, so yeah, I always, I'm very aware of all of my, um, my shortcomings, uh, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. So, you know, her and I sat down, but, but what was different for us, and maybe it was because we had worked together is, before we even started the business, we sat down with a shareholders agreement and said, let's talk about all the hard stuff. I mean, we were sitting on my deck in Toronto. I'll never forget it, drinking a glass of red wine and kind of crying because we had to deal with these really tough issues that we had to get out and talk about because we said, what's the point? We can't bury these things and we'd rather know now. So we did the hard stuff up front. You what's, know? A, what's an example of, of one of those clauses? Who makes the decisions, right? Like, because you know, if you're at a 50, 50 and you know, one thinks I should really go in this direction and the other person thinks, no, we should really go in this direction. You have to make a decision. And so if you're not a team of three, and so we came out, we never share who or what, but we came out and said, this person's the final decision maker. And then the other person had to say, yeah, okay, I understand why. And okay, I'm going to have to be good with that. And I think what's worked for us is having gone through that conversation, the person that ends up being the decision maker also knows okay, but I do have to engage and listen to that person. It doesn't mean it's my way all the time. It, and, and the other side that we've noticed is there's a weight with making the decision. So in one sense, it can seem like, okay, well, that person's got the upper hand, but that person's going to die on the sword too if they make the wrong decision. So that's the type of thing that we would look at. Um, you know, if, you know, family, if something happened to somebody and that person passed, you know, do we want that person's husband to have involvement in the company? Like, it's just, what are all these scenarios that could happen both during and after? And so let's talk about that now. It's like, it literally is marriage counseling. And, and I would say, if you don't go to marriage counseling before getting married, those are the things that you're going to think, I really thought I knew you. And I never thought to ask you that question. And now I'm just floored by how you're responding to this. So that's an example of, of some of the questions we had to ask ourselves up front. Has it worked out the way you thought or hoped it would? Absolutely. And, and I always say, uh, I am so glad that I had somebody that, you know, on days where I could say, Hey, Christy, I am like literally mental health day. I'm, I'm, I'm tapping out, you know, I'll be back online tomorrow morning at 10 and Christy will say, yeah, okay, I got your back. And then she'll have times where she has to tap out. And it's just nice to know that you have that back and forth. We have our days. I don't want to make it sound like it's completely rosy, but we've never, like, we're still the best of friends today. Partnerships, the necessary evil. Somebody mm -hmm. once told me that. Yeah. Um, and also a lot easier to raise capital, right? Seed money if yeah. you've got partners. Um, solo printers tend to not get funded. Um, the percentages are, are lower. Mm -hmm. um, okay, Lisa, this has been just an amazing hour of conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. In the last two minutes, um, where do you want to point listeners to to learn more about Rent, Frock, Repeat? Yeah, rentfrockrepeat.com. We're actually launching our new subscription service. 
And so if people want to check it out, we're actually uh, signing people up to the wait list. And so you can get more information there, but that's the place to go. Rentproperpete.com. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Talk to Thanks, you soon. Thanks, Adam. Bye. Okay. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash e2 to do so. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all time? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling styles, representation, the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid. Electric acid.